Hello, and welcome to the Comedian's Paradise. This is the podcast where we speak to mavericks, innovators, and complete nutters in the entertainment world. The people that have stories, life lessons, things that will shock us, inspire us, and that will that will be that will intrigue us. Now, today's guest is a basically imagine what would happen if Del Boy became a comedian. Imagine, and he taught in the, you know, like Del Boy, he stopped, he stopped like making money for markets and decided to become a teacher, but also he decided to become a comedian on the UK comedy circuit. This man is signed. He's a man who, who brings comedy from a very different angle than a lot of people. He's a man who has recently come from doing a keynote speaker but also doing comedy in it as well. So he makes serious topics funny. He is a man who's doing spots for the comedy store, many different clubs across the UK, and he is emerging in many of the comedy clubs in London. Please welcome Mark Nicholas. Hello. Hi, so it's, no, it's, so, it's so weird when you introduce me, it's like I'm about to go on stage and like, where's the applause? <laughs> 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 I'm joking, I'm joking, I don't have that much of an ego, don't worry. <laughs> so how big is it, Mark? No, how big is the ego? <laughs> oh, uh, I mean, to be honest, I thought this was going to go Louis CK there for a moment. Um, but no, uh, the bit... The ego's got a bit bigger um, since, you know, the more I go into the comedy and things like that. Like, um, yeah, it kind of happens when you start doing, like, bigger uh, clubs as well. And you're like, you, you do start to get a little big-headed, but it's important to keep grounded because, you know, the big clubs are not as often as I'd like them to be, but... You know, you need to keep grounded to try and keep working it, working the circuit. So I'm trying to keep grounded, but every time I get off in a really lovely spot, I'm like, oh, yes, I'm brilliant. And then it's like, oh, God, no, I have one bad gig or something. And then it'll be like, no, I'm terrible. Literally, there's no in between. I'm either really amazed. I always think I'm really amazing or really shit. I, I don't, I mean, probably most of the time I'm middle of the road, but my head goes all over the place but yeah that's what happens when you have a comedian with a um, with mental health problems so <laughs> yay <laughs> but you're doing sort of is it 10 spots or five spots for the store now oh at, at the moment at the moment it's five spots um it's, it's i mean it was hard enough to get the five spot well i did it through you know king Kong. And now I'm doing regular five spots there. They want to push me to attend, but they like me enough to keep inviting me back. But it's just like you just you need your rhythm needs to be smoother for us to get to attend, which I get because I'm used to doing extended spots. When I'm suddenly asked to do a five, I haven't done fives in years. And but it's like the competition five, they call it. So, you know, you have to be short sharp jokes have to come quick and that's it you can't really banter with the audience and sometimes i'm used to bantering with the audience you just have to be right nail every joke for the five minutes and right okay then we'll move you up to a 10 and it's actually harder than a lot of people think because i'm you know the longer you go on for the more material you have and so when you get there and you're like oh crap i've got to do five minutes what are my best five i don't know 
because um, I like new stuff all the time. Hmm. Do you challenge yourself and try and work with a? I hear that Louis C.K. used to do this thing where he would um, write his new joke at the start of his set, like to challenge himself. Do you do that? Like you deliberately come up with a new opener each month or so? Well, no, but I think I am going to start doing that as well because I'd like to do new openers. I'd like to introduce myself differently because I've had one main opener for a year or two, but I'd like to try and change that. I think it's quite a good idea, actually. I think it's quite a good challenge to set yourself. Um, what I do, I slip the new jokes in the set and then, and then I phase out the old jokes and that's how I get new sets. So I gradually bring new jokes into it and then ne over the next few months, I'll have a new set. But yeah. Do you find that you sometimes enjoy, like when you've given the old stuff a bit of a break for a while, do you find that you enjoy it when you bring it back? Yeah, because say, say if the new stuff isn't landing, you always can uh, pull the old stuff out of the hat. Um, and I'm just talking about my penis. No, I'm joking. Um, yeah, no, I'm not going to go. See, cock joke already. Like, that's, that's, how, uh, that's how low I've set this standard. Um, <laughs> but no, so no, it's I pull the old stuff out of the hat like, if the new stuff isn't going so well. Like to just to bring the audience back, you know. But some if the new stuff is going really well, I'll just continue doing it. So but yeah, it is nice every now and then when you bring a golden oldie back. But the thing is, audience don't know what your new stuff is and what your old stuff is either. I mean, sometimes you can tell, but I think the biggest, most annoying thing, and I've done this sometimes, is when an act does a joke, it doesn't add, oh sorry, that was new. The audience doesn't know what's old and what's new. The I mean, best thing to do is do your joke. If you don't get laughs, just move on. Or make a joke that it was a bad joke. Um, but I, I do it sometimes. Oh, sorry, that was new. They don't know. They don't know what's new and what's old. Unless you're a TV name, they're not going to know what your jokes are. So, yeah. What, so do, do, what, do you try and set yourself like, a goal for every month to write a new joke like you seem from what i've heard already like you're quite a prolific joke writer in like building new stuff up and writing stuff uh, i mean it's, it's i think if i have an idea i run with it um i don't really set myself goals in terms of if, if i have an idea and normally i'm maybe once a week or every couple of weeks or something will happen at a gig i thought oh that was quite funny i'll add that to my set so I'll just build on my experience and, yeah, just, like, okay, the, the, for instance, there was a, I asked an audience member what they thought autism was and someone just said numbers. And so now I've literally they just said, oh, it's numbers. And it's just like, okay, well, what numbers? Prime numbers? And then I start listing all the prime numbers and it's just like, um, yeah, it's just, just to really mess with them. But, yeah, I'm trying to write a joke out of that. Um and then what I'll do, I'll go, um, I, was I was diagnosed with autism when I was 11. Um, I was in my prime. And it's a really, it's, it's such a corny throwaway joke. But so that's what I mean. Things will happen and that will spark a joke in my head. So experiences happen and then that enables me to write jokes. So, yeah. And do you, do you, before you go on stage, when you're like developing a joke, 
do you do you do this like thing where you spend people say some comedians do the pomodoro technique where they uh they time themselves to 20 minutes and they write down as many ideas as they can and then they leave it and they do that every day to try and build bits up and then they take it to the stage are you or, or do you just write down random ideas just as a fun exercise and whatever comes to you on stage comes yeah, basically, I think I think I'm what I work more with the latter. May I mean maybe I should set myself up. Problem is, if I I want it's it's really annoying if I try to sit down and write, nothing comes to me. But so every I'll be I'll be just sitting having a cup of tea watching TV. Suddenly an idea will come to my head. I'll get my laptop out and I'll type. So for me, it's more spontaneous. Um, or what I do, this is why I quite like MCing as well, because actually you can get ideas by MCing, by doing crowd work, by finding out what people think about things and formulating jokes around that. Uh, so that's always a good technique to do. That's why I would say to any comic, like MC, compare sometimes, even if you don't want to MC as a thing, it actually helps you develop your stage presence, your crowd work, and it can help you on your jokes as well. So, yeah. One of the things that I found <clears throat> sometimes running a night is like, like Axel asked me to, if they could MC and this and that. I It does help to do that, like, but I, as I'm running a night, I like to MC a lot as well. You know, like yeah, I'm the runner and I like to take care of the baby and make sure it's good. One yeah. of the things I think Axe should do so they can get their much MCing time they want, it's actually run a night and do it. Because if yeah, you're asking exactly. someone else to ask the MC, you know, maybe you'll get one MC spot a month or like um, maybe a couple or a year. That's, that's not really enough for you to get better at MCing. Plus, if you yeah. run your own gig, you could do one every week or you could do it at least maybe 30, 40 times a year and you'll learn so much more times in terms of MCing and went well, for someone else to give you that, that MC spot. No, I agree, because that's how I started MCing. I started my own night, and, and from there, I was like, every now and then, if there was a guest MC spot somewhere, I would be like, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll apply for it or something. But I won't say expect other yeah. nights to give me MC spots all the time. I understand that, like you said, it's your baby. Like, uh, with my night, I'll only allow sort of a guest MC to come on if it's a themed night. Like, say if I'm doing, say if it's an all women's bill, I'll have a women, you know, like it's Women's History Month, I'll do a theme around that and I'll have a fem uh, female MC and all women lineup. Um, so that's, or if it's LGBT month or something, like every now and then, if it's a themed month that I think I can get acts with a certain identity, then I'll have all those acts including the MC that fits that. But most of the time it's me MC. But yeah, so actually, yeah, I think you're right. I think if acts do want MC experience, starting your own, own night is a good way to do it. Yeah, I think it's probably the, to get the amount of MCing you want. Yeah, definitely. Mm, yeah, yeah. Now, you were talking before the podcast, and like I've spoken to you a couple of times on the show and seen you here and there. But I found out just talking to before the podcast, you are a big fan of like pie and mash and jelly eels, and you have a bit, you know, Mark Nichols is a bit of a bit of a bit of a, you know, you see no new ways Essex based on Mark Nicholas. 
Well, it's just like I, I always, I did, I did this joke once because I lived near a place called Gans Hill. I, I, I did this joke that I was the best straight white male comedian in Gans Hill, right? And the idea is I was the only one, but then I found out something like Russell Kane's from Gans Hill or something. <laughs> and I was like, oh shit, he's on, going to be on to me. And I know Russell Kane is much better than I am. But I thought there was no other kind of, but of course, Russell Kane's pop. Russell Kane is proper Essex. If you ever listen to Russell Kane, he's proper, proper Essex. But I had that East London Essex twang, bit of Walthamstow, bit of Gansill, bit of mixed into mix and mass, you know, pie mass we were talking about. Um, yeah, I like to mix it up, really. Um, but the pie mass thing, I don't mean, the, when, when he said it, you're like, oh, I'm a massive <laughs> fan of Jelly Deals. Oh, that Jelly Deals is fine. <laughs> Like it was a fetish or something. No, like I really do not. My my grandparents used to like serve jelly deals at family events, <laughs> and it was just there. Like I wasn't like, oh my god, my favorite jelly deals. <laughs> you know, most kids, it's oh, it's uh, apple pie and, and cakes. Me, oh, looking at sort of vinegary bitter taste. Oh, it's lovely. But no, I wasn't like that at all. It was just there. But the pie and mash I do like because yeah, pie and mash is is very um, especially in the winter, it warms you warms you up a bit. But yeah, it's good. I'd recommend pie and mash to anyone. But the thing that's annoying about a lot of pies that I see in restaurants or that a lot of it's all sort of pre-made and ready-made. It's not like made in the restaurant. It's like they've ordered it from somewhere, and then they cook it with something. That's that's a bit annoying because it's like. You know, I'm sure it's much better if it's actually made properly rather than like. Oh yeah, like definitely. Like, I I don't, don't like when my my nan used to do pie mash as like uh, I used to go around there and it was lovely because it was pastry, it was homemade, and she used to get decent cuts of beef as well to put in it. And the way she did the mash was great. And yeah, and it was always oh, lovely. Like you you know your nan's East End nan cooking. Incredible, like yeah, absolutely, uh, and big gravy as well. Lovely. See, see, this is the thing. This is where there's the north and south crossover, actually. Oh, um, like this is where, like you know, the northerners love gravy and everything. Actually, the southerners do like a bit of gravy as well. And I have to admit, the one of the northern things I've picked up was gravy and chips. I love gravy on chips, and it makes sense as well because you put gravy on mash. And chips is basically mash. So why not? So yeah, yeah. why not? Yeah. <laughs> I like yeah. curry and chips, but it's it's not not I've had a little yeah, I've had that as well. It's not too bad, but they put too much gravy on, so it ended up being soggy. I think just a little bit, but you want the crunch of the chips as well. Yeah, you don't want it to be literally like sagging as you pick it up. It's a bit, yeah, I get what you mean by that. Um, you know, sometimes they just do, actually KFC does this, they have a little pot of gravy oh, yeah. and then you dip it in that. And that's actually really, oh, I dip the chicken in that or Ooh. something. It's, it's actually really nice, um, you know, me talking up KFC. See, Comedians Paradise, sponsored by KFC and East End Pine Chips. Of course. That's what we're going with. <laughs> There we go. We'll get loads of pie mass sponsors coming. You know, flooded. Yeah, that that might be a new business plan, Mark. I'll ask some of them. Look to it. Oh, imagine the pie and mash podcast. The pie, that's a wicked name for a podcast. The pie and mash podcast. 
PMP, Party Mass Podcasts. That's brilliant. That's a great little acronym right there. Oh, yeah, it could be. <laughs> what, could we're just... <laughs> yes. We visit Pie and Mash in the UK. What? So, boy, what makes your Pie and Mash better? Oh, dear. Sally, yeah. what, we're going to now another Pie and Mash shop in North London. What makes your Pie and Mash better? Is that all we can do? Pie and Mash reviews? So, yeah, there we go. We can have people around the country reviewing Pie and Mash, and that could be the podcast. That would be interesting. But like, be. let's not get sidetracked too much with food. Right? <laughs> let's not. Now, how has your sort of background shaped who you are and like like shaped your sort of comedy? Because you have quite an interesting background, obviously, like your East End, like a bit of Essex. Of course, you have a bit of autism. They they are turned into the mix, bit of autism, bit of Essex. I uh, don't know how else to say, <laughs> but yeah, but <laughs> I mean, it's, it, yeah, it was, it was a certainly um, uh, interesting background I have, like, growing up. Like, I also have, I, I have an identical twin and two older brothers. So there's four boys, four of us. Um, <clears throat> and the thing is, we've always grown up, like, you know, following comedy and sort of comedians and, like, you know, growing up with certain comedy shows like Blackadder and Monty Python and... Yeah things like that, different sketch shows and like, so, and different stand-ups. Like we used to, like me and my brothers when we were teenagers used to go to Backyard Comedy Club on a regular basis just to watch comedy. Uh, And it was brilliant. It was like, there was, you know, emerging comics um, that, you know, that weren't quite TV level yet, but were like on the cusp. And it was quite mad. Like, you know, a few months, a couple of months ago, I was, I was, performing that backyard and it felt like a quite strange nice little circle um but i've always grown up loving comedy and things like that so me and my brothers have a very good sense of humor so quite a dark sense of humor as well so i think it's um along with the autism as well like i don't have a filter so i'll just say things that come to my head and sometimes those things will be funny and sometimes those things will be offensive and sometimes it'll be both. So that's how I bring it together. But yeah, and like my older brother, who's the middle one, he's an actor as well. So performing has always been in my family. Like it's a thing that a couple of us do in the family. Not everyone, not all of us, but just a couple of us do. But it's there. So, but yeah. That's that's sort of in a nutshell my background and how it shaped my comedy, yeah. But did you break each other's balls? Like, did you like take the piss out of each other, or did like in terms of like comedy? You mentioned that you're quite a no filter, but when you're growing up, what was the background that created your sense of humour and style? Oh, I mean, I mean, okay. So things I'll give you an example. If you've ever seen the, um, if you've ever seen the Office, the English version of the Office, right? Uh, there's a scene in it uh, that me and my brothers kind of play on a bit. Uh, it's like, so there's a scene in it where Tim phones Gareth and just says cock down the phone. <laughs> and so what we would do is phone each other up and just say cock and then hang up. And then, but it then it got a bit bizarre. So I got a new laptop for my 18th birthday and I p- pressed it on and big screensaver just saying cock. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> 
And it was it was just an ongoing joke, so we continued picking up each other. And then the best thing I did is that I met so I met Charlie Brooker at a signing uh, when he was signing one of his books he wrote. And I said, "Sorry, can you just call my brother a cock?" And he was like, "What? Just can you sign it, calling him a cock?" And then he opened the book, and it was Charlie Brooker calling Ryan a cock, basically. Hi, Ryan, you're a cock. And I think that's the highest level we've got <laughs> to with that. I don't think anyone's got higher than that, but we will try and challenge each other. Or, or I got I literally got in the post uh, a couple of months ago for my brother Daniel a uh, cock flavored soup. You can get it; it's chicken flavored soup, but it's called cock flavored soup. <laughs> so, so that's a sort of little pranks. That's what we would do. That that sort of thing. So we'd see something on a like a comedy sitcom, and we would try and like almost act it out in a way and just have a bit of fun with it. So things like that, like little pranks we used to do on each other, you know. So, yeah, we'd always have a laugh. We'd always make jokes and, yeah. So, yeah. So with that, like you, so you're a bit of a prankster, a bit like Troll Station, but how is it, and with autism, how, how has it shaped, like, your comedy? Because from what I see of you, like, I know that you're quite a sharp one-liner, you're quite a good joke writer, like, you and your missus are quite really good with the... Boom, boom, boom. Well, the thing is, I, um, well, this is as well as my upbringing, my uncle was always one to do dad jokes, so silly little one-liners, like, what, what's Bob Marley's favourite donut filling? jamming that really sort of bad dad jokes but like so I grew up with a lot of dad jokes as well so I but I, ju- I just think it's um I don't think it's shaped me in terms of the experience the experiences I've had growing. writing material is quite it comes to me quite naturally because I, I had a lot of, we had a lot of fun growing up we had a lot of fun we had a lot of laughs so the experiences I have, I like to talk about um, on stage as well. Uh, but with the autism, that was quite difficult growing up. But I, I, I find the humour in that. Um, like genuinely, when I was younger, I used to smear feces on the wall, right? Because it's a sensory thing, the autistic thing. And then, <laughs> as I say on stage, yeah, I got really bored during lockdown. So I try and make a joke about that. I try and go, oh, yeah, that's uh, this is what I did when I was younger, actually. And so I think some of the more traumatising things that happened to me when I was younger, I try and make jokes out of it. Like, um, I, I told that I had no filter. Like, everyone says someone with a disability who's performing is inspiring. I don't think my mum thought I was inspiring when I guessed her friend's age by counting her wrinkles out loud. (laughs) I did that. I did that. I genuinely genuinely did that. So it's like I wasn't very inspiring. So when I do, people with disabilities are inspiring. No, we're pain in the arses. Our parents have to rein in a bit sometimes. But... So, yeah, I think it's a lot of things, really. I, I, I can't really go into too many specifics, but, yeah, just just my whole life is... I just... I don't, I don't care what I say on stage because it's almost like therapy for me as well. I had a bit of a, yeah, difficult upbringing. But, yeah, on stage, it really just helps get it all out there. But, yeah. Hmm. Uh... <laughs> Sometimes, do you feel when you're on stage, you're talking about dark personal stuff, 
right because there's pressure and because it's uncomfortable do you find sometimes you ad lib some really good bits because you're uncomfortable the order's uncomfortable so you're trying to find like a punchline to try and make it comfortable for everyone there to ease the tension yeah so it's like uh so for instance i'll give you an example so when my dad passed away i, I dealt with that in a very weird way i went traveling off to vietnam and i actually did a bit of comedy out there that's how i started but when my dad died i talk about on stage and i go he never got to see me perform stand-up comedy i'm sure he'd he'd be looking at me laughing looking up at me and then i look down as if you know to suggest my dad's in hell and i go you're a dad how's prince philip you know so it's like I, I i i try and try and find the funnies in that and also my dad was a bit of an old school bit of a racist as well a bit like prince philip but that was a generational thing i don't judge him too harshly on that because <laughs> but yeah so i try and say something a bit messed up a bit dark about a subject you know i'm grieving but you got to find the funnies in it. Like, yeah. you got to look, look at, you know, when celebrities die, the first thing I do is I get a joke. That's how I find out a celebrity has died. Someone will send me a joke. That's how we deal with it in Britain. That's how we deal with death in Britain. We make a joke of it. So it's, it's, it's a way of dealing with grief. Maybe it's not the most healthiest way, but it's the way we do it. Hmm. But yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, it's, you have to make, to make things less bad than to make things to help cope with things it's a coping mechanism you feel yeah oh no absolutely it's definitely a cope i'm not saying that should be the only coping mechanism like i've had a lot of therapy um but like most comedians have as well it's funny when you talk about like when i talk about my night i go and it's a night for comedians with mental health conditions. So that's every comedian you ever see. Because it's, we've been through stuff. Like, comedians are very messed up people. Um, or good comedians, anyway. Because they've lived the most interesting lives. It is definitely a coping mechanism. It's not the only way you should cope, though. Like, you should do things like switch off from comedy. You know, go and find an another hobby that's nice as well and spend time with your close ones and get help if you need it but yeah like it can help comedy can definitely help being on stage takes you away from things for a bit yeah comedy is a quite uh what's it called what's the word of it oh yes um yeah you are right definitely right about that i agree with you in terms of like if you don't have the faults or the quirks, they're often what make people funnier. That, that makes, as you say, yeah, like Mr. Bean, his stupidness and like uh, Ronan Atkinson's like funny yeah. face and the fact that he can speak for a while. And is then you got the, what's his name? Leslie Nielsen, the Canadian guy. He looked incredibly yeah. stupid, but that that's what made him funny when he did those daft things. And you got... I was yeah, I was like Robin Williams as well. Like, just the impressions, things he would dart across. If you ever seen Robin Williams on stage, incredibly messed up person, like bipolar, lots of manic depression stuff. But on stage, incredibly powerful performer. Just dart from one thing to the next was amazing. But yeah, sorry I interrupted you. I do apologise. 
That's it. We're ending the podcast. <laughs> yeah, that's it. I'm done. I've been cancelled. Damn it. I knew that would happen one day. But it's, it's, uh, yeah, it, it is. It, but it's, you know, I see some of the great comics, the really good comics. You know, they're not famous, not pro or anything, but like Joseph Murphy has quite a lot of quirks. He's very funny, very good at improvising. Yeah. Uh, well, Jeff... like Stephen Catlin as well, like another one who's does a lot of clowning around, you know, like he, like last night I saw him at a gig and he was in a bee costume. Um, and I'm not going to say his jokes, I don't want to ruin his set, but it was brilliant. It was, yeah. Although the quirkiest comedians are the best ones, I think. I don't know if what Stephen Cap, what he's, he's not taking official sort of a, a clowning sort of, I'm not sure if he had course or what he's done. It is creative and it's out there. And like when people love what he does, he's brilliant. But I don't know if it is clowning. I'm not too sure because he, it's, I'm not too sure if it is. People often misunderstand clowning. It's a bit, yeah. Uh, I'm not too sure if what he does, it's more sort of character comedy in a way, I feel. Rather yeah, than it's clowning. more character comedy, maybe bits of real. But yeah, I know what you mean. Clowning's quite specific, isn't it? Yeah. Well, it's more like you play with the audience and you have like you have an idea and it's something yeah. that's unformed and like you're the idiot on stage. Like and you find something stupid and then you like you have an idea it goes completely wrong and that ends up being the funny bit. There's so many different definitions and clowning, but from what I see, it's what I've done when I've done the clowning, it's where you've had an idea, you expect it to go one way, but it ends up going completely another way and it's yeah. being funny and you keep repeating that pattern and pattern to make exactly. it funny. Yeah, 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 definitely, definitely. But yeah, I'm not too sure if what Stephen Kepling is clowning. He wouldn't like me for saying it, but you know, as someone who studied clown and does clown, has seen a few other clowns. It's good what he does, but I'm not too sure if I will classify that as proper clowning. Like, like maybe like Elf Lions is probably more clowning. Like if you've ever seen Elf Lions, I've not seen her like perform on stage, so I'm not too sure. I mean, I remember watching a video of her doing. Uh... She does teach clown as well. I do remember oh, watching a video of her doing, yeah, no, 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 maybe, yeah, towards, but then again, that came across, I haven't seen her, so I can't really say. There was so a video did, I like, saw that was- She did a felt... parody of, she did a parody one woman show of Swan Lake, where she was getting into different costumes and things like that, and it was wonderful, it was brilliant, but it was piss take, it was just, it was a parody, but it was, yeah, I would definitely describe I would describe what she does as clowning, but then yeah, I I'd, I'd highly recommend yeah. that scene. If that's what, if you know, if that's you, okay. you like that, then definitely go see her. Yeah, I, I definitely want to see. Her. I, I took a what's it called a lesson with her in terms of like movement and all of that. But yeah, she's a lovely, lovely girl. But I've never, yeah, I will, that's one of the things I will do at some point. Now. Yeah, but yeah, definitely the quirks of what I've seen sometimes. Yeah, the people who are some the funniest off stage are people with big quirks rather than people that are too polished and normal looking and too squeaky clean. Yeah, it, they can sometimes they can be funny on stage, but off stage, the ones that are too squeaky clean and too normal and regular aren't as interesting. Yeah. Yeah, like. 
Mate, yeah, I, I would say, I would say so. I think, I think I'm more drawn towards uh, the bizarre comics, the ones who are a bit mental on stage and actually turns out off stage as well. Um, but no, in a nice way, in an absolutely lovely way. But they're also, I often find the ones that have the most quirks are also one of the ni- nicest people off stage. Like actually more humble than you'd expect. Like I'll give you an example, John Robertson, he does the dark room and he does and he 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 can get up on stage and improv for 20 minutes, 30 minutes. Incredible, totally crazy on stage, absolutely. And you think you all that high energy, he's completely on it all the time. But when he's off stage, he's actually really down to earth and a really like sweet, lovely guy. Because I think that's his outlet. But I think he's yeah, he's more down to earth. Whereas I've seen, you know, more. I've seen the more, as you said, the clean, polished comedians who have the certain jokes, um, totally in their own heads off stage. Won't give you the time of day. So it's yeah, I I totally agree that there's that style. The quirky ones, after the ones that are actually off stage are a bit more like yeah, you can talk to and um, yeah. Ah. There's what you say again, yes, because they're being more themselves. Whilst because the squeaky cleans have so used to putting so many layers up and not being themselves, yeah. part of them feels like they're they're trying to appease other people rather than being what they truly are. And when yeah. it gets too many stage where you're putting all these masks on, trying to people please, trying to do this and that, you don't even know what you are anymore. Yeah. And I think that's the one danger of comedy sometimes. Um, I think that's why you need that balance uh, between your comedy life and just your personal life, really. You know, Um, try and separate those two. Uh, Because, I mean, obviously I love comedy. I'd never give it up. At the moment, I'm, I'm really enjoying it. But, like, I certainly remember at one point I needed a break from it because... I was gigging every day and then I had a big um had a big spot at the so one of my biggest gigs was at the Glee Club in Nottingham. And it was like and it was my agency did the showcase. And problem is I was so nervous about my performance, I've been performing every day to prepare for it. And then when it came to the actual day, I'd lost my voice. And I remember Variety D just giving me loads of lozenges and things like that just to help make my voice all right. I was like, okay, okay. And I and I tried and did my set, but I just wasn't anywhere near what my best was. So my agent told me that, and she actually said to me, you need to take a break from it a little bit. And then when you come back to it, don't do it every day. I know there's a, there, there is a temptation to do comedy every single day, but you burn out and you burn out quickly. And that's when your performance starts to suffer. So I'll do two, three gigs a week and I'll be happy with that. That will give me enough time to perform on stage and things like that. Uh, And and to do my best on stage. But gigging every day, I get why acts do it. But for me, it's like when you're trying to polish your set too much, you end up making it worse. So it's actually good to do it two, three times a week. And and double up as well. Like when you are doing gigs, do try and do a couple of gigs and 
in the night, you know, that's what the best pros do. But to do it every day and every single night, I mean, when you're on tour, it's a bit different. You don't have much of a choice, but yeah, doing it full on like that, comedy being the only thing you're going about you could really limit you and it can and actually if you get too invested into it to a point where you're obsessed it can drive you crazy and you you do burn out there is burnout there's comedy burnout it happens all the time and it happens more than people think yeah. speaking right, of... I went off on a tangent there <laughs> no that to extent yeah I think that's 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 yeah that is something to consider now, one of the things that I find quite interesting is there are a lot of comedians with autism and comedy, lots. Yeah. One of the things that I found quite, um, one thing that is always been quite funny and thing that maybe you must probably get annoyed with is the misconceptions of autism. Yeah. Now, what's it called? I must, I don't. I'm a bit quirky and I'm a bit, what's it called, different to a lot of other people. And I do a lot of silly things. Yeah. And maybe I'm a bit more honest than other people or a bit more of a dickhead. I don't know. Depends on the person you come across. Sometimes it, yeah, it goes, merges. <laughs> one of the things that's been quite funny is I often get called autistic and all that. But the thing is, Fine. where's the proof? Like, you're just making a surface level distinction what autism is. And I feel yeah. that that's an insult to myself and the people who have autism. Like I saw, like it's, you know, it, you're not taking the, to understand it. How are you going to know what someone is just on a surface level? Like you, you, you're not properly researched it or try to understand it. You're just, oh, just labeling someone like that without properly trying to understand it. Like I had that with um, a few comics say that about me. But they, they've never even take, taken on to understand whether it's true or not. But like, that's what, and it's a bit like, why are you using it as an insult? Insults just, it's just what someone is. What is an insult is if you're wanker and if you're a cunt and a waste of space. And that's what you, what you are by perpetuating that. Now it's, it's, it's just what someone has. Doesn't mean anything. I've had that a few times on the circuit. I've had that a few times in sort of life. People call you autistic, but you know, there's different people. There's different ways of describing it as well. You know, people get this, oh, you're a smart person with autism, but you're socially awkward, or you're an incredibly stupid person. But there's a lot more to it than that, and you've never taken yeah. the problem to understand it. And as someone that has autism, you must get, like, when you're growing up, people misunderstood it, and kids, they're completely in dispassionate. Now, even to being an adult, you must get loads of mis misinterpretations of autism and people saying all sorts of things. I, yeah, do you know what? I think you're really hitting the nail on the head there. I think there's so many misconceptions. And I'm trying to write a set that has a lens that... Because what I want to do on stage, I want to take the stereotypes about autism and try and turn them on their head. That is the whole point to my act. Um, but I've had people question whether I'm actually autistic because I'm very confident and because... I'm quite extroverted. But the thing is, you get you get the more introverted autistic types and you do get the more extroverted. The problem with me is I don't have an off switch. And that sometimes bothers people. Whereas there are autistic people that when you try and have conversations with them, it's like getting blood out of a stone. Um, so the autism, the spectrum is 
just massive. And as you said, Marvin, to generalise like that and, and to assume you're autistic and it'd be a bad thing is, yeah, it pisses me off. Like, it's, from the way you describe it, it sounded like they use that as an insult. Oh, he's he's obviously yeah, autistic. Yes, 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 yes. What, I mean, what is that even about? Like, I just, I don't understand it. I've never understood that. Um, but yeah, or like, the thing is, that's why I'm very open. And I go, what? I'm autistic. Here I am. This is me. This is what my, how my autism presents itself. And then people are like, oh, I would never have said you're autistic had you not mentioned it. And um, when I say that, and there was a gig a couple of nights ago, and I said to this woman in the crowd, um, if I hadn't mentioned my autism, or, or were you surprised that I said I was autistic and complete silence? And she just went, no. And everyone was in hysterics. I was like, oh, you could tell, could you? You could tell. I mean, she ended up being a psychology student. So, of course, she could tell. Yes, yes, yes. So, she could read that. But, yeah, like, uh, I'm a bit quirky, but extroverted, uh, non-stop speaking, obsessions over things and yeah I like the sound of my own voice I'm not gonna lie that's why comedy actually comedy and autism have more things in common and actually Joe Wells does an amazing bit on this um whereas I think about what comedy is um you're talking about yourself for five minutes ten minutes straight about particular interest and it's a one-way conversation and you and then when someone heckles you, you're told to be really socially inappropriate to them. What's more autistic than that? And I just thought that's such a brilliant way of putting it. Like, so Joe Wells is 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 one of my favourite acts on the circuit, and he does a lot to try and dispel the myths around autism as well. Um, so he had yeah, another autistic act. But yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I think it's wrong. Um, I think you shouldn't stereotype or pig pigeonhole us. You shouldn't be like, well, he's autistic and he's not, and he's autistic and he's not. Like, that's awful. Like, that's awful to do. It's just, okay, are they a good act or not? That's literally the only question you should ever ask yourself. Ever ask, you know, if you see an act, are they a good act slash promoter or MC? Um, that's all you should really, and are they a decent person, really? And everything else, I don't define myself by my autism. I mention it because I like talking about it. Because I used to be embarrassed about autism, but I used to go, no, I'm too smart to be autistic. And actually, <laughs> a lot of autistic people are very smart. And I used to be ashamed of it, but now I'm like, no, I talk openly about it. I don't care. This is, it doesn't define me, but it does explain some of my quirks. But it doesn't also, it doesn't, give you the excuse to be a dick I'm, I'm not going to name names of here because actually this act I'm talking about in particular has got better but this act in particular he used to perform anytime he used to have a go at the audience and it not go well he used to blame his autism he said I'm autistic you know and start getting upset about it you can't judge me you can't do this I can say what I want I'm autistic or I didn't mean to say that I'm autistic it doesn't give you license to be a prick and I remember calling him out on that a few times and luckily he's I'm not going to say who it is it's not fair on the person because they he has actually learned from that but I've I've known people who use all 
as an excuse to be an arsehole. No, you're an arsehole, you're not an arsehole. Autism doesn't come into it. Like, I'm sorry, it doesn't. And I know who it is, but we'll say who it is afterwards. Yeah, we'll <laughs> just say who it is. I think you'll know who it is. I think everyone, <laughs> every comedian will know who that this is. Every, yeah. But yeah, we'll talk about this afterwards. But yeah, he, he's actually got a lot better at the person in question, I will just say that. Um, yeah. He came up to me and apologised to me a few months ago about he was going through some stuff and he's working on himself at the moment, which is great. You know, I don't, I don't write people off. Like, people can get better, people can improve, and we all make mistakes. I think if people apologise, that's the, that's, that's the main thing, yeah. Exactly. If you acknowledge your mistakes, then great. Then you move on from it. But yeah. One of the, so for someone that's listening in now and they want to now autism is very sort of diverse thing and it's hard to sort of put it in one thing but for for people to get a proper understanding of what it is so they don't get into stupid things like they often do when you say autism what yeah. is something you would say for people to go around that in terms of what what autism is it's <laughs> well, hard to pigeonhole it you don't want to pigeonhole it but but people not get stupid ideas in it. Yeah. Um, it is. Oh, so I want to say this without being offended. Other autistic people. By the way, my my definition of autism might be a bit different to others, but I would say it is a social impairment. It means you sometimes struggle to socially communicate with others, um, but it also means that you have a fantastic focus. You have a brilliant focus on things and of subjects. Um, and you often have very good knowledge, not of everything, but of it, your particular interests. Um, yeah, it also means you can be very caring person. A lot of people shoot people with autism and not caring. We're actually what's called over empathetic, as in, we feel other people's pain more than others were because we find that hard to process. Oh my God, it's so overwhelming. We actually feel it a lot as autistic people, but we sometimes find it hard to process things. I think that's what I would say. We find it, there's a delayed reaction in the way we process things. But when we do understand something, we understand it more than others. I'm not sure if that makes sense. It's quite a, I'm trying to make it as broad as I can for the listeners out there. So really, social impairment, sometimes you struggle with people, but once you understand what's going on, you understand it more than anyone. So once we do pick things up, we're on it like that. Okay, yeah. No, it's just just, just for, because just, it's completely misunderstood by a lot of people and they make yeah. such stupid generalisations and that, that's not true. And I wanted to see from your side what it is because you uh, you understand it. We're not all train spotters that are in our rooms rocking back and forth or anything like that, making noises <laughs> or anything. We're not that, you know, this is what I mean. You know, it's... But, yeah. <clears throat> what... Um... What do you, th what do you think? Um, but with with, though it may have some faults, autism, as you said, it gives you better focus. So that as a result, it's made you maybe a better joke writer. 
than you would have been had you not had it, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I mean, yeah, sorry, what was, it, was that the question? No, I'm just a statement. I'm saying, like, because even though you have autism or whatever, it yeah. has helped you a lot in other aspects of your life, even though there's problems as well. Yeah, because because when we autistics start to problem solve something, we go really in depth in it and go, okay, well, this is the problem. We're going to really focus on solving it. And we do. And same with joke writing as well. We go into the details of the joke or we'll listen in for the laughter of our recorded sets. What was it about that joke that no one liked? Or did I miss the punchline by a beat or something like that. Yeah, it gives us a it gives us a super drive and a super focus as well on on things in particular. That's why I love for instance I put a lot of effort into promoting <clears throat> my nights and I promote every act on there and I try and get people down to my nights and I'll be always on social media doing it. You'll see me, but it's because I have that focus on what I know makes a good night. Um but yeah, no, the focus can really help. Um, but sometimes it means that when we're super focused on one thing, we are not focused on things like our personal lives. And that's sometimes a balance I have to try and find. Like that's why sometimes I take a step back from the comedy, not because I don't enjoy it, because I need to focus on my say relationship, or I need to focus on my family, or I need to focus on, I don't know you know, my finances or, or sort of things like that, things that everyday life that people do. Sometimes when I'm too hyper-focused on one thing, it means I stop worrying about the other things and I should learn to try and... That's the problem with autism, it's that hyper-focus on one thing and, okay, we can't fit everything in our heads, whereas a lot of people seem to manage that and us autistics struggle with that. Does that make sense? It's yeah. like this hyper narrow focus sometimes. No. Okay, no, that's that's great, clear. That's very sort of precise. So yeah. it's very autistic. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. No, it's uh, true. I gave you a very autistic definition of autism. I mean, that's very meta. <laughs> <laughs> now. So, next few questions on like, um, what what are things on like the comedy circuit that you'd like to change, that is realistic, that isn't idealistic, that you think could be changed? I think the comedy circuit could do with being a little less cliquey. And, and again, I'm not going to talk about any knights or promoters in particular. But I do sometimes feel like there's a habit of people just booking their mates all the time. And I see it, you know, up and down the country. And I think that's something that realistically can change. Like, <clears throat> I'm not saying that it means I should be expected to be booked for them to every bill in the country or anything like that. But I think what I am saying is I think promoters need to be wary of not just booking their mates all the time or booking the same people all the time. And um, I think you're actually quite good at doing that because, you know, I do my, I do your gig once every good few months and that's good because it means you have a diverse lineup every time you have different lineup every time and that's how it should be. Thank you. 
But I, uh, but I, I, and I do think promoters need to just be wary of that because I think you fall into the trap of just booking your mates all the time. And that's not a good thing. Like people develop cliques because you do, you build relationships in comedy and that's a good thing, but you can't let that, you can't then go, oh, because he's my best mate, I'll give him this spot because then you fall into all sorts of weird things. So I think that definitely needs to change. And that will have an effect on comedy in a way. I mean, effectively, what you said there is com comedians are performing cronyism. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 there is nepotism in comedy. There absolutely is. And anyone who says they're not is lying to you. Or if anyone says that's not, it's either lying or is so socially unaware like of it because it does happen and i'm sorry it really does and i notice it all the time like i don't i don't mention names i don't i don't start having a go at those people but i just i just make a note i just go okay well i've noticed this about particular acts or particular nights or particular bills i just noticed i i make note of it i go okay well i've applied for that night for however many times and it's not me being bitter about not getting on tonight because then I know friends who've applied for certain nights they can then, that no one can seem to get onto apart from certain people. And it is that it, it just creates a very closed off thing. And that's not good for the comedy scene. To make the comedy scene better, you need to be more open. I, th I, think, I think all nights could do that, every night included. Just be more open with it and give, give new acts more opportunities to progress. Because that's what I feel is often lacking as well. It's so hard to progress on any night, really. Because as well, you, you know, you're booking a certain amount of acts every day or every week or every month. And it's really hard. And there's so many comics on the circuit right now. There's so many. It's very overly congested. But it still doesn't mean you should ignore acts who are just starting out. Because... They're the ones that need to be pushed up the most as well. Hmm. I mean, obviously, if they're not great, don't book them. I'm not saying just... <laughs> yes, yes. I'm not saying give new acts the headline spots or anything like that. I'm not saying book them for the sake of them being a new act. But if you can see their work in their craft, if they're putting in a shift, and it just be, if they just say have one bad gig at your night, it doesn't mean they're a terrible act. It just means they've had one bad gig. But if you could see acts that are working their absolute nuts off, then, you know, just just make note of that and go, OK, well, there's an act who's working, who's working the circuit well and they deserve opportunities. But, yeah, so that's what that's what I would say. In the nutshell, it's just more opportunities for more people. But it's easier said than done, isn't it? I think, I think nights need to work together to because we share information about bad acts that's why i've noticed not promoters will share information about acts that are a bit no don't book that but very we don't often share um, information about acts that you need to oh yeah we should book every now and then you will every now and then i notice people will but there's a lot of there's a lot of like as well as cliques there's a lot of infighting going on with i don't know i just noticed a lot of negativity and I know comedy is competitive anyway but I think we're all in the same boat at the end of the day and we just need to 
to support each other, not to make judgments so easily, like, or rumours will go round about an act. Unless those rumours are substantiated, then why are you trying to ruin that act's reputation for the sake of it? But obviously, if rumours about certain acts are true, then, then yeah, of course you can back out of them. But yeah, it's, it's, it's a weird that there's too much negativity, too much competitive, too much cliqueiness. It just needs to be a bit... It needs to be nicer. I think that's what I'm saying. Comedy, The comedy circuit needs to be a bit nicer, less ruthless. Hmm. It puts a lot of people off. Yeah, it puts me off a few times. <laughs> it's true, it's true. Like, I mean, I'm, I know I'm bringing a doubt on this, but this is reality of a lot of nights, actually. You've basically described Hollywood. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm... You'd be surprised. I mean, yeah, the the comedy scene is very much like that in a lot of ways. I mean, except, you know, without the money. <laughs> without, well, well, it depends on the night, actually, I would say. But, you know, without the big bucks, you know. Um, but, yeah, no, it could be very Hollywoody, actually, I think. Comedy store isn't too bad. I hear that they paid £250. Well, no, I should not what am I doing? No. <laughs> No, 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 the comedy, no, no, no. This is what I mean. I'm not saying any particular night needs to. Uh, uh, I'm not shitting on all nights. The comedy store is brilliant. I love it. I've got a lot of time for comedy store. But I'm just saying every night needs to like. What I've noticed about the comedy store as well, for the longest time they was they their lineups would be diverse. But actually, the last three four years their lineups have very diverse and there's a lot more women on their bills now and it's brilliant so things are getting better i mean things in comedy are getting better there is it lineups are more diverse but i think we've got to stop closing ourselves off to people that we know we need to just yeah it's yeah it's it's well it's it's, it's like becoming factions and all that you mean yeah that's what comedy is often like political factions if you look at like the Labour Party or the Tory Party, it's different political factions. It's the same with comedy. It's different factions. He said, "Dear, I don't like this. I'm more of this. I'm a, I, I'm pro cancer culture. I'm anti cancer culture." And actually, sometimes it's way more nuanced than we like to think. The pro and anti the cancer culture debate is too like black and white. It's more nuanced cancer culture. You know, some people are genuinely cancelled, or some people. Um, are not genuinely cancelled, but sometimes it's, no, no, they had, you know, they were told off for, not told off, but there were consequences to what they said. Uh, but it doesn't mean you just write them off totally. Because if they then try to make amends, then okay, you don't write anyone off, in my view. But yeah, so it's, it's more nuanced as well. So yeah, it's but it can be very factional. You get too many like, yeah, I don't like it. Yeah, but one thing that's definitely true, me and you definitely have people that we don't like in the circuit. I think there's, there's always going to be that. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 that's absolutely fine. And I get that. But there are certain people that want that, that if you try and give them the benefit of the doubt and you try and give them chances and opportunities, or, or but, but then they just don't, they make things worse for themselves. And yeah, absolutely, it turns you off them. 
And you go, no, I don't, I don't want to. I don't want to know an act like that who who doubles down on their actions. You know, like the thing is, that I used to have the attitude where, you know, if someone's a piece of filth or no, I'm not judging you. If I if I feel that they're a bit of a scumbag, not a nice person, I always get rid of them completely. But my attitude towards that is changing a bit because there's always going to be arseholes, there's always going to be scumbags, there's always going to be bad people. You and me both have dark traits in itself. The only way to handle cunts is to be around them. And then you learn how to deal with them. Then it doesn't affect you so much. And then it becomes, then it doesn't bother you so much. And then you can just, you know how to navigate around and you work it. It is good to have everyone cool, but that's just not the way it's going to be. You have to deal with wankers here and there. That's the oh, way God, it is. yeah, but this is what I mean. But this is what I mean with comedy becoming too factional, becoming too cliquey. We all corner, corner ourselves into particular acts and we won't let in other acts as we disagree with their views, like, say, poli political views. And I don't think that's right. I think as long as... Well, you might be a cunt, but... As, <laughs> You might be a cunt in the way you do your jokes, for instance, and you might be no, but you might be like uber right wing or whatever. But if you treat a night with respect and you treat the other acts on the bill with respect, in my view, it doesn't matter too much about your joke. I mean, if your jokes are overtly Jim Davidson like, then it becomes a bit of a problem because a lot of the audience will be turned off by that. Because, you know, we moved on from that. But, like, if, you know, you're a bit near the knuckle, a bit right-wing, but you treat the night with respect and other acts with respect, then fine, in my view, honestly. That's... Yeah. yeah. Sorry. No, 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 carry on. You were about... It's, 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 about, it's about respect, basically. As long as we learn to respect each other and the audience and everything like that, then... Yeah, treat treat the night as a as a as, as a job or whatever, and you know, respect everyone there. And you know, if you're making other acts uncomfortable and not safe, and you're making the audience feel that way, then there's a problem. I'm sorry, but there is. But if you're not like that, if you go and do your jokes, and they're quite controversial jokes, but the audience like it. I don't know. It doesn't matter to me. Like if you treat the acts and audience with respect then that's the main thing for me. Effectively, just treat your workspace like, like you would treat your office. Make it more... You may not like this person, you may not like this person, but at least make it more comfortable for everyone involved. Exactly. At least make it be nice and get on with the job and make it more pleasant so that everyone's in a better place and be professional. Yeah, be professional. And the amount of the amount of acts are not like that. They'll just throw their toys out of the pram for silly little reasons. It's like, well, no. But also, at the same time as a promoter, I'm very wary as well. Like, I know some promoters are stricter than I am. Like, you know, if an act is running late, other promoters will go, oh, you're late. Oh, I'm not booking you again, blah, blah, blah. But if something has happened, the reason you're running late, or then you need to be a bit more understanding of that. Or, like, I, I've been on the receiving end of it. And I, as a promoter, if you're an act that's constantly cancelling on me, I'm not going to want to book you because you're not reliable. However, if you make one fuck up and you 
either forget to come to the gig or have double up or double booked by mistake or you ran ridiculously late to the gig i'll give you what i'll give you a couple of chart like there's the rule rule of three with jokes and rule of three with acts as well for me if you're cancelling or really late like more than three times, whatever, then I'm not going to book you. Why would I? Because I need someone reliable that can be there. But acts make mistakes as well. I think as promoters, we need to recognise that as well, that life gets in the way and life happens. And I like to think I'm quite flexible as a promoter. And that is as an act, if you cancel me, but you give me enough notice to book another act, then that's okay. Yeah. Now these these are good things you're saying, and I think one of the things is though, we can only have power of ourselves. I mean, we can't really control other people, so it's very it, the thing that we should. It's difficult thing, easier said than done. But the thing is, you can't control other people or what they are. They don't have the same values as you. Um, just don't be offended. Just try not to be offended or too emotional by it, and just just you you can't control it. It's just the way it is with life. The only things you can't, there's only certain things you can control. Focus on that. The, yeah. And when you said with a lot of things there, you did comedy, you're dealing with a lot of people that have huge ego. Same with acting. The the people in there have huge, huge egos. They have egos about the size of Mount Everest in comedy or acting. Oh, gotcha. If if you point out that they're wrong or different things or this, that, it's got to be delicate, man. Because like they're so fixated on what they believe, if you damage their ego, they will go out to try and destroy you. They're what's it called? And they'll, as you say, double down on that. They'll keep going in that because they're so there's such big egos in that. I am this. I am correct. There's no possible way that it could be wrong, and it's, you can't change that. Some people are like a lost cause. There's nothing you can do. It's just yeah. the way it is. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Some people are like that, or, or you know, if I've 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 had acts where they got they want to perform, it won't go well, and they'll ask me why they, you know, they'll ask me, oh, why, why would the audience like that? And I'll go, well, maybe it's because he said this, for instance. Um, like there was this one act who made a joke about um, fucking Thatcher's dead corpse. Right, and uh, yeah, and and they said to me beforehand, I've got a joke about that. Do you think that will be funny? And I went, Well, it depends how you say it, but if I were you, I'd maybe avoid that. Like, just just fucking dead corpse joking about fucking dead corpses, unless you're Frankie Boyle and you know how to operate that type of joke. Then, and this was a newer act as well. I was like, maybe just leave that the first time you're performing here, just maybe leave it. And, you know, if you want to help work on it, I can help you with that. And then they still ended up doing the joke and then the audience turned on them and then they got pissed off and walked off early. And I was like, I did say, I did say to you not to do that joke. Oh, I gave you advice. I mean, at the end of the day, again, you can't force an act to do something they don't want to do. But if they come to you and go, look, I've got this joke, do you think you'll be right? I mean, it's risky. It can go either way. I'm not going to say to you, don't do it. But I'm saying, actually, this type of room might not appreciate that. 
And that's what exactly what happened. I hate to say, oh, I'm right. But I was like, they did give me the benefit of that. And then they came back and did another spot at my night and they did the same thing. And it's like, well, how can I help you if you're not going to learn from that? And then I have feedback from other promoters that this act would do the same type of jokes like that and it would never go well. But they were so intent on doing those types of jokes. It's like, you need to learn to take advice. Believe me, I've been there. I'm not saying I'm innocent in all this. I'm not saying I'm the perfect comic. No one is. I've made jokes that I absolutely love, but I know audience hate. And I've had to get rid of them because I know the audience do not appreciate those jokes. It's just like, this is the way it is. But as, yeah. it's actually, you've got to be delicate with the acts, but at the same time, if the acts are never listening to anyone, never taking anyone's advice, then they're not going to grow as a comic. No, I, I think in terms, sometimes when I've received harsh but truthful criticism, in that moment, I wasn't able to deal with it. But I would have to have a kid. It would take it takes a couple of days for me to process it and then to figure it out. But in the moment, it's better just to leave it alone because it's emotional and it hurts and it's upsetting. Yeah, of course. But when you've thought about things, like you've done something wrong or you've done that, then you're able to sort it out. But yeah, it's it's just something you can't control. And um, yeah. But yeah, what, what, what I won't do, I won't go up to an actor and go, okay, I know why you're set and bad. But if an actor asks me why they thought that, why I thought their set went bad, I'll be honest with them. But also at the same time, what I find really difficult is if, as if when I do well and another act doesn't do so well, and they go, oh, that's a great set, mate. I'm not going to say it back because I didn't think their set went well, but I'm not going to say, oh, your set went shit. I'm like, oh, yeah, thank you. But I won't say it back. Vice versa, I've noticed the same thing. I, I won't do so well and another act will do brilliant. I'll say to that act, that was a great set. They won't necessarily say it back to me because actually my set wasn't that great. Uh, but they won't go your shit because that's being a dick. But yeah, I can't, I'm not going to tell an act their set was great if it really wasn't. Yeah. So I think there needs to be a bit, not total brutal honesty, but a bit, and you need to be delicate. I say acts have egos. But you need, if they ask you your opinion, then you give it. I think you do. I, I've always gone with honesty. It's not going to help an act if you're not, if they ask for your opinion and you're not honest with them. Yes, it's always a difficult thing. But I mean, you're, you're dealing in acting, comedy, and also music. You're dealing with narcissists. And when you're, dealing, when you're looking at what's it called, and I've done a bit of research on it, they, when a lot of advice when they say you're dealing with narcissists or having them in your life, most advice is you're not going to change the fucker, move away. And we're in an industry where it's filled with it, so people probably should have, should have mixed with any of us. No, I don't know. It's it's it's. I'll be honest. I I probably I I I did a bit of research in this. I do have a bit of it, but I did find with a bit of researching, my level of narcissism isn't as bad as I thought it was. But it is to a degree, and I'm aware yeah, of that. Of and I want well, I want to manage it. Oh, of course. Like, believe me, I will take criticism as well as the next person. Like, I did a roast battle with Joe Murphy. I mean, Joe Murphy is the king of, <laughs> he's the king of roast battles, by the way. Like, absolutely brilliant. The judges, and he said, my 
roasts were good, but they were a bit too wordy. It took a while to get to the actual joke. And I saw that. They were like, they're clever jokes, but it was a bit too wordy for the insult. And I'm like, fair enough, I will go back and learn. But I have a start to my set, I'm not going to reveal it to people, I have a start to my set that every promoter likes apart from one. And they'll go, no, that bit you do is outdated, Mark, and it doesn't work. And I'm well, maybe other, other promoter likes it. So, like, sometimes I won't... If I get constant feedback that a joke is not working, then I'll take it. But if I have one person telling me a joke doesn't work and everyone else liking that, then I'm going to go with the majority. Like, yeah. So I think that's how you balance the narcissism because you do need to be confident in what you're doing as well. You can't, if one promoter says to you, no, that was, they were bad jokes. But if no other promoter said that to you, then you've got to go with the hindsight. They're good jokes. It was a bad gig. Because that can happen as well. You can have the perfect set in terms of jokes, but it could be the performance was off. Yeah. It can be just, yeah, and not everyone's going to like you. It's just the way it is like with people. Not everyone likes you, not, but yeah, it's the way it is. Yeah, it's the way it is. Absolutely. Now, with the biggest thing, like, it's been great to have a chat with you, Mark. Um, what's what have been what's been the what's been the hardest what's been the, a challenging upsetting time that was very weird that you look at now and you think is funny and that has taught you the most oh wow see i was i was um i've been talking i've been rabbiting non-stop this podcast but this has made me a bit speechless as well. This is a difficult one. Uh, something that's hit me the hardest, but when I look back on was really funny. Um, yeah, like a painful experience that you laugh, like a painful that experience where you look at, that was bloody weird, but very, and you laugh at it, and that's funny. Oh, <laughs> bloody hell. And I've learned so much from it. Oh. Um... Oh dear, like well actually this is a this is a I would say this is a comedy experience. Um I I I opened a gig just after lockdown and I it went horribly, like really bad. No laugh. And when I say no laugh, maybe one person laughed. And then there was this woman in the front row, arms folded, or arms folded, and expressionless. And I said to her, God, you look very emotionless. Maybe you have autism as well. <laughs> uh, I, but do you know what I mean? I was feeling that shit on stage. I was taking it out on the audience member and it got booze. And I was like, okay, well, I'm just going to leave you with this. And I left it with a joke and I just pissed off. And afterwards, it was horrible. And then the next act that went on stage just had to work their ass off to win the win back. And that was awful for me. That was, but do you know what was. Um, what was I think what was really funny about that is the way I doubled down and the way I just started insulting the audience. I, I look back as 
But I say it's funny. I mean, oh my God, why? What a stupid dick I was. That was funny. And it was because it was one gig. I'm not going to see those people again. And it was bloody hilarious. And I got material out of it because <laughs> I did. Because there was this one person, he literally said, Oh, I wish he would just end this. Like, literally shouted it out during the gig. And I went, Well, that's the worst thing to hear when you're on hold to the Samaritans. <laughs> so I make a joke of it, but I felt horrible that night. I just went home and I was just so, I'm giving up comedy. That's it. I've come after lockdown. That is it. That's the worst. But actually, I look back and that was bloody hilarious. The audience hated it. I hated it. I was insulting the audience and someone gave me a great joke to work with. I look back and laugh at that, about how bad that was. And actually, sometimes you do have to find the funny. So it was. It was funny. It was. I was opening a gig for the first time. That gig had been running in a couple of years. And I just almost destroyed that gig in 10 minutes. So that was... I think that was hilarious, really, because it was like I knew what I was doing. I knew how it was going. Yeah, I just still decided to make it worse. But I've learned a lot from it. I've learned not to do that. You know, if suddenly the audience are turning against me, what I try and do is just finish with a few like high jokes and just walk off stage. What I don't do is double down and go after the audience, which is what I did. I was like, I accused everyone who wasn't laughing of being autistic, which goes against everything I believe about autism, because us autistics have a very good sense of humour. But I was feeling so shit in that moment. I was just going after everyone. I was like, I'm the comic I despise the most. I'll look back on that and go, yeah, that was a really low point for me. But I've learned a lot from it. I look back, I was, it was funny because of how bad it was. Do you know when someone's doing so badly, it is actually quite funny. I don't know. You know yeah. you've ever seen that. It's actually like this is this is horrendous. There was a there was a there was a gig I was at where an act was performing so badly. Um, my mate took a picture and it was just me behind this act, just head in my hands like this, <laughs> and it was on camera as well. So when the photos <laughs> were going round of this gig and this act performing, it was just me doing this behind them. But then a few months later, it was was the other way around. I was that act, and the audience were like this. So it all goes in cycles. Comedy goes in cycles. When you think you're seeing a bad act on stage, you're that can, that will happen to you, and you have to find the funnies in it. Otherwise, you won't cope. Like if you have a bad gig and you're constantly diluted, if you're constantly focused on that bad gig, it will get you down and you just got to move on and find the funny. Go, yes, I was terrible that night. That was shit, but it was fucking hilarious because of how bad I was. Does that make sense? I don't know. No, that's brilliant. No, I've shared that as well. I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's you're only one gig away from a bad gig. Yeah. And yeah, I know I know what you mean. You, you, I've seen some you laugh because of awkwardness and it's like, oh, bloody hell, what's this? Yeah. And that, that's bad. Now, for anyone that's listening right now, how do they find out about you, Mark? Uh, so you can follow me, uh, not in the streets, that's illegal or it's frowned upon. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter, M Nicholas Comic. 
uh, Instagram at MarkNicholas9699. Uh, Mark Nicholas Stand Up Comedian on Facebook. I also run a night called Laugh Able. Um, so search that on Facebook. Uh, and Laugh Able 9690 on Twitter. And, no, Laugh Able 9690 on Insta. And Laugh Able 9090 on Twitter. Uh, and that is how you can follow everything I'm doing at the moment. But yeah. All right. Well, you know where to go to find out about Mark. If you've liked this episode, give it a five-star view on Amazon or iTunes. Share it with your friends. And I'll see you at the next episode. Have a nice day.